0: So tonight, we're going to kick off a series in the book of 1 John. And if you're newer uh, to 20-somethings, primarily, we like to do what are called expository messages. And what that is, is basically, we want to make the point of the text of Scripture the point of our message. The, the beauty that we believe in is that God himself gave us his word so that we could understand how to live like Jesus in this life. So that we could have hope. So we could overcome trials and that we could have community together until Jesus returns. And so expository messages really are going verse by verse, get, get, getting the point of the passage across so that we can take home God's message, not just whatever random thoughts I have or whoever is teaching has. And in that spirit, we, we, we take seriously reading the Bible and wrestling with, with passages of Scripture. And so what we've done is we wanted to do this for a while, but uh, we finally got to do it The series we have purchased for everyone these scripture notebooks. These things are awesome. Um, And in this particular notebook, it's got 1st through 3rd John in here. Um, They don't make any small enough for just 1st John. 1st John's a real tiny book. Um, But what we're going to do is we're going to hand these out. So I've got a a few friends that have agreed to come up and kind of pass these out. And essentially, these notebooks, again, yours to keep, mark them up, um, use them, and really, the goal is that you would become much more familiar with the book of 1 John by the teaching, but also you wrestling with the passage. Maybe in your devotions, you're going to go through uh, and use this notebook. And what you'll notice, if you open it up, is that on one page, there's a text of Scripture. And on the next page, just right next to it in the spread, is blank, a blank page with lines that you can actually write and take notes. I use this for my sermon prep today. Um, these things are awesome. So it's yours to keep. We've got extra up here if we need them. You know, we want to save some for new folks that might come. But seriously, take these home. Use them. E- even if you're listening to the message. Um, it, it, some of you have journals you'd rather write in. That's great. But if you don't, use this as a way to take notes. And uh, we're going to have some pens that we'll pass out if you need some as well. But, so raise your hand if you need a pen. You don't have something to write with. Um, my goal every time I teach... And anyone else that teaches in 20-somethings, their goal is not to be innovative, to be new. They should teach in such a way that you walk away thinking, oh my gosh, they, they pay that guy or that guy you know, or girl came to teach? Like, that was obvious. Because their teaching should show you what's right here in God's Word. And so use this. Uh, we want you to fall in love with God's Word, and this is our investment in you, and we hope to do that for future sermon series as well. So... If you've got your Bibles with you, which now you for sure do, so you've got no excuse, uh, turn with me to 1 John, but I guess in this case it's a whole lot easier. I'm just so used to saying that. Uh, Open up to to 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 1 tonight. And as you turn there, I want to give you just a little bit of context so you understand where we're at in Scripture and what's going on. This John, his name is 1 John for a reason, this John, the author, is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. And uh, he is writing in the, the, the latter third of the first century A.D., probably somewhere in the years 80 A.D., in, in that decade, or the 90s A.D. And uh, John was a very old man at the time of his writing, very old man. Potentially the very last apostle to still be living that would have walked with Jesus, but potentially, depends how you date this. Um a lot of people think he was pastoring in Ephesus. He would have fled Jerusalem at one time with a number of Christians, and a lot of people think he was pastoring in Ephesus. Um, which is why when he writes Revelation uh, later on from Patmos, he's got all of the names of the different cities of the of the churches in mind that would have been not that far from Ephesus when he's writing. So it's the, the same John that writes the gospel of John in Revelation, he's an old man. He's writing primarily to younger Christians because as the gospel is spreading, as churches are being planted. John is trying to encourage these younger Christians in the faith. And then last bit of context that will be helpful is that there was a heresy going on around some of these Christian communities uh, called perfectionism. And this is a theological heresy that basically says uh, that when you come to Christ, by God's grace, it is possible for you to live sinlessly from then on. And I've met a few people like this. um, And it always catches me off guard because as Especially as an evangelical Protestant Christian, I'm I'm so used to like being assuming I'm more sinful than I could ever possibly know, even my thoughts are sinful that I don't know about. And so, for someone to tell me that actually I haven't sinned in six months, like I was like, man, I either you're you're amazing or you're just a liar, and I I don't know, you know. <laughs> but um, but and, and they wouldn't say that to be arrogant, to be clear. But they believe you know by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit, that I've I've been sinless, and yet. That this is not at all what Scripture teaches, and John's aware of this, and you'll see that he points this out later in the passage. So, remember, it's John, written later in the first century. John's an old man writing to younger Christians, and he, one of the things he's doing is fighting the heresy of perfectionism. So, with that, um, as we prepare to dive into our passage, I'm going to ask one question. For the sake of time... Um, I'm going to give you guys just three to four minutes, which is not enough time to answer this question at your tables, but for the sake of time, we're going to do this. Here's what I want you to talk about at your tables as we prepare to dive into the passage. If you could write one final letter to share one final message, who would you send it to, and what would you say? What would be that final message that you would want those people to hear? So if you could write one final letter... Who would you write it to? What would be the message? What is that one final thing you would want people to hear? That's a huge question. Uh, if we have more time, I'll give you more time to answer. But just at least kind of have that in your mind. Talk about it at your tables for three to four minutes. And then we will dive into our letter. So keep your answer in mind as we read the letter. And you'll see why that will be relevant in just a moment. So look with me at verse 1. We're going to read all the way through the chapter. And we're just going to break it down verse by verse. Can I go forward? <clears throat> that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But... If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all of our sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, though, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. One of the first things I want you to notice about this is, remember we call this a letter and when you think about some of the other letters in Scripture especially the Apostle Paul usually there's a greeting you know, dear so and so or I'm the Apostle Paul, servant of Christ a grace and peace to you and there's lots of formalities and niceties and things like that and yet In 1 John, which is a letter, we don't see any of that. No niceties, no formalities, nothing like that. Why would that be? Well, I think the reason is that John feels a particular urgency about his message. He wants to get straight to the point because it's that important to him. And if you'll remember in our context, we talked about how John was an old man writing to younger Christians. He would have felt like a father figure to them and more than likely a lot of scholars think that when John wrote this letter he wasn't sure if he would ever have the chance to write another letter and and it, if you watch folks that are older in your life especially as they're getting closer and they you know death becomes much more present to them than often it is for us younger folks um, they're not sure if they're gonna have another day and so you, you, you don't take days for granted and so for John a lot of people think that he had no idea if he would ever write another letter to his people again. And he's like, okay, I don't care about the niceties. Let's just get to the point. I want to tell you the most important message and point of my life, and I need you to hear it because I love you and I care for you. And what you'll find is, is if you read through John's message, one, you can, it's almost like you can feel the urgency. You know, in that very first section did you notice how it almost felt like he was repeating himself and almost stumbling over his words, like just trying to get to the point? You know, this word which manifested to us, and he's saying it things like that multiple times. If you ever talked to to an older person, like I, I think when my grandpa was getting ready to pass and he was still able to talk a little bit, I just remember him. He was so under this weight of urgency to tell people about Jesus that I remember him. It was just like almost like he was stumbling over his words but not in the sense of a stutter, but just of like, I can't possibly, my, my, my words can't match the excitement that, that's in my heart, because I need you to hear this, and I almost feel like there's something of that in what John is doing here, um, it's just, you know, it's like if you ever sat down to write a text when you got a lot of emotions, it's almost just like you, you can't keep your thoughts straight, because you have all this stuff you know you want to say, it almost feels like John is in that place, but you'll notice, I mean, it's just like he gets straight to the point because the message is so important. And, and it reminded me, if you've ever been in this scenario where you've been with someone in their final days, um, one, of, one of my just most immense privileges as a pastor is I've been able to be with a lot of senior saints in their final days in the hospital. And I, I'll tell you what, it is, in, 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 you know, in an odd way, one of my favorite things, not because I glory in death, but because you really get to see the beauty of someone's hope in Jesus. In those final hours, in the hospital room, the heartbeats going slower, the breasts are heavier, and yet you can feel their love for Jesus come out very clearly. Maybe you've been there with a, a grandparent or someone like that. It's one of the reasons for me. I always, I will always prefer to do a funeral of a senior saint over a wedding. Not that I don't like doing weddings or anything like that. It sounds really morbid, but. With a wedding, usually people are super focused on details that if we're all honest, no one notices and don't really matter. Um, it's hard to please mother-in-laws at a wedding. <laughs> and, uh, th- th- and to be honest, nobody listens to the message. They don't care. I mean, your job as a pastor is just not to mess up, you know. Um, but at a funeral, people typically focus on the weightier things, more important things. It- it's like, it's like the-, the most important things kind of rise to the top, and that's what we remember. People are ready to be comforted and pastored, and they want to hear more about Jesus because they need some assurance. And you get to see the core message of someone's life come out. And I feel that in John's words in this opening chapter of his letter of, I have a message, and young Christians, I want you to hear it because I love you, and I'm seeing all the turmoil going on in the world around you to me, one of the clearest examples I've ever seen of something like this, where someone's getting their final message, the theme of their life out for people they love to hear, was actually at a funeral at this church in the worship center several years ago. There was a girl who was a part of 20 somethings at the time while she was back here in KC and her father was a firefighter and was diagnosed with just a really aggressive uh, form of cancer. incurable. And he passed away, and there was a massive funeral. And he knew that would be the case, because he was a younger man. Massive funeral. Hundreds and hundreds of people showed out here at the church. Uh, entire kind of, uh, uh, there was military figures. The, uh, the, uh, the fire department did this massive display. Uh, they played instruments and taps. They played Amazing Grace on the bagpipes, which was like one of the most chilling things I've ever heard in my life. Um, and there's a moment in the service where the lights go dark. And if you've been around PV lately, you kind of wonder, like, okay, is that just normal, the tech going out? Or is there a purpose to this, you know? And um, it turns out there was a reason, uh, because the video screen turns on. And on the video screen is this video. It's clearly a cell phone video, kind of shaky, of that man just before he died, maybe a day or two before he died, with the little strength he had left, sharing the gospel one last time and talking about how much he loved Jesus. And I just remember, one, thinking, how in the heck is the pastor supposed to get back up and talk after that? You know, like, my eyes are just so uh, teary at this moment. But more importantly, I thought, man, that is someone that is so under the urgency of the gospel that knowing he knew that there were going to be so many unbelievers in that service, he thought, they're going to listen to me in this moment. Um, And he wanted to encourage the Christians around him To say, it is worth it. Even when your body is failing, it is worth it to follow Jesus. He is good, I promise. It will be worth it together. And so the question I would pose to you, um, many of us don't think like this because we're young and death just feels so far off, but if you were to die tomorrow, which is a possibility for all of us, we're not promised another day, And at your funeral, the pastor were to get up and to begin to talk as if you love Jesus with all of your heart. Like is often common at funerals, whether or not someone's actually a Christian, would the people in the audience be shocked or surprised to find out you were a Christian? Think about that. If you if you were your funerals tomorrow, pastor gets up and starts talking about how much you love Jesus and, and the glory of God and things like that. Would people in the audience be shocked to find out that you claim to love Jesus? And I ask that question because I've, I've been in funerals just like that. Someone that I knew for several years, and the pastor got up, and he starts talking about that and how much the person loved Jesus, and I, I literally, even as a pastor, like they knew I was a pastor, I never once heard them talk about Jesus and, other, and say his name other than to, to curse or say it in vain. And I just remember feeling so uncomfortable in the moment because, like, man, that blew my mind. And to me, it was a sad moment because the reality is niceties at a funeral don't say anything about the eternal state of our soul. So when you think about the message that you were going to give that final letter, you would write. And I realize, you know, it's a little bit of a cheap question because if you knew where I was going, you'd probably say something a little bit different. But um, if you're just being honest with yourself, is the message you want to leave people with have anything to do with God and about his relation to your life? Or is it just about kind of secondary worldly affairs? For being honest. That for us is a good indication about what we actually value in this life. And we should live our lives in a way that represents that. So that if we died tomorrow, someone gets up and starts talking about God's love in our life, it would just feel like perfectly in accordance with the way we lived. It should not be a surprise to people we are Christians. And so I just think about John's message and you think about his life and just think, man, am I living like that, that my life gives the message that Jesus is my all. I mean, you can just feel John's excitement and like, I have touched and I've tasted and I've seen and I've heard and I've felt all these things like Jesus is real. You can feel his excitement. Does my life communicate that to other people? Because your life may actually be your final letter. It's not often we get a chance to sit down and write a formal letter to someone in our final days, it, it may be that we're gone tomorrow and is our life sending that message to other people. John's a huge model for us in that. And it's worth us considering as Christians in a world that is often hostile to us, the same would have been true for the world that John was writing to. Are Our lives a source of hope for other people and a source of the gospel message and truth to others. Because you read John's message and it's clear it is all about Jesus. He's at the center, and he is the one that we live for. And I think what the strongest Christians in my life and their lives are exactly in accordance with that. Two other observations about that first section. One, totally unrelated, but in one sense still vastly important, Mm -hmm. is notice that John talks about a message that he is proclaiming. He says it multiple times this which we are proclaiming to you now typically when we think of a proclamation we think of words we think of messages we think of old kings with a guy blowing a trumpet and there's a written uh, decree and things like that but if you'll notice john immediately goes from this message we proclaim this word we proclaim into we have tasted and seen and felt and touched and experienced and heard and what you realize is Is that the message that John is proclaiming is not word it's a person the message is a person and that's important for us because in our world I would say that we are the only group of people on the planet that can say that our message is ultimately a person every other group is going to have a rally cry every other group is going to have Uh, a brand they're trying to uphold, uh, a law or political philosophy they're trying to say, some religious philosophy or outlook, something like that. But for us, we get to hold up Jesus. Our message is a person. And it makes us unique in all the world because our lives are proclaiming not, not merely a message of words, although that's true, but a person. And we get to embody that person as we live. Final observation on that first section. You'll notice that last line where John says, we are writing all of these things to you so that our joy may be made complete. So that our joy may be made complete. Let me explain what I think that that means. Um, Many of you, if you know my mom at all, especially prior to January 8th of this year, knew how much she would often talk to me about how she wanted me to get married. Maybe some of your moms are like that too. I mean, just like it became this running joke, just like every time I would see her, hey, you know, are you going to get married yet? Like what's happening? Like there's some in the picture. And I'll be honest, uh, for a number of years, I, I had begun to wonder because of a number of uh, girls I dated that ended up doing long-term missions, and that became a running joke, and a number of other things, I began to wonder if I would ever was going to get married. If God was actually calling me to singleness. And, uh, and that's a holy calling, and it's one we talk about here as well. But for my mom, that was one of her big dreams, is that her son would get married. And the reason she would always talk about that is not because she was trying to rub something in my face. It wasn't a selfish motive on her part. But it's because she had touched and felt and heard and sensed the love and the beauty of her marriage with my father, and the ways that they had cared for one another, and upheld one another, and been there for one another, and helped one another grow in their walk with Jesus. And she knew how amazing it was for her, and she wanted that for me. And there's a real sense in which I, I, I'll never forget the, the mother son dance on my wedding day, dancing to Celine Dion, of course. And um, I remember being there with her, and it was just this beaming smile on her face. Because there was a real sense in which she could say her joy was made complete. It was something she wanted for me so badly because she wanted me to experience a joy she had experienced. She wanted that for me. And John is doing the same thing here. He is saying, I have tasted and I have seen and I have felt and I have touched. Jesus is real. He's exactly who he says he is. He rose again from the dead. He died for your sins on the cross. He is coming again. And I'm going to be with him forever. And I want you to have that joy too. And so as he is staring down the road, what looks like glory may be coming quick. His time on this earth may be very little. He's saying, my joy will be made complete when I know that your joy is in Jesus. He's saying, I love you guys. You guys are like my children in the faith. And I want to make sure you know Jesus. Because the way we have fellowship forever is when you have joy in Jesus too. Are there people in your life that you've discipled or mentored or that you know that you would have that same longing for? Are there people in your life that you love? I, I just think one of, for me, one of the biggest burdens of ministry, and this is not just a ministry thing. I mean, if you're, just, if you're a Christian, is all the people in my life who are not believers that I so desperately want to come to know Jesus because I want them to experience the joy that I've experienced. And I think about the, the people in my life that are believers and their faith is faltering and they're struggling. And I just think, I love you so much. I want you to have the same joy that I've had. Do you have people like that in your life? Think about that. And if you don't, I would, I would just ask you to say, get in the habit of discipleship. Read the Bible with someone. Start talking about the things of God with someone. And feel the weight of eternity on behalf of others and begin to pray for them. And show them the love that you have and show them the joy you have in Jesus Two. So that's that's kind of the first section. I'm I'm skipping past a question or two just for the sake of time. But a number of things. I mean, we could spend a bunch of weeks just on that first first passage. But I want to want us to move to the second half now. You'll notice we've talked a lot about how this this feels like this could be John's final manifesto. You know, he's not sure if he's got another day. And it's interesting. It's not surprising at all to me, at least, that he would talk about how much he loves God. And how much, uh, how much joy that God has brought him, and how much uh, amazing grace Jesus has given him in his life. That to me is not surprising. What's su- what is surprising is what John says next, because if you'll notice in that second half, John over and over and over emphasizes the importance of holiness. He emphasizes it's important to fight sin, and to bring sin to light, to confess your sin. And I'll be honest, that would be the first thing I would assume. But yet, when I think back to the many occasions that I have been in the final hours with, with senior saints who have gone on to be with the Lord, that's exactly their message. It's how much love they have for Jesus, and so many of them soon after, some of the holiest people I know, will say, I wish I would have fought sin more. I wish I would have fought to love God more. And of course, the whole time I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you feel like you're inadequate. I'm, I'm like a rookie. But it's this beautiful thing of them seeing the true reality of things that their sin was never worth it. Whatever feels good in the moment, it was never worth it compared to Jesus. Jesus is the one that we cling to. He is the one that gives us our ultimate joy and satisfaction. Our sin is never worth it no matter how good it feels in the moment. And John emphasizes the importance of holiness and confession. And one of the interesting things is he emphasizes the connection of holiness and fellowship. Holiness and fellowship. If you look with me at 1 John 1.6, he says this, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Why would John connect those two things, holiness and fellowship? I think two reasons. One, the first and most obvious reason is that, he, that if you are not truly a Christian, then you won't be in heaven to have fellowship with believers forever. There will be a separation. So, I mean, just by nature of being a Christian, it, and, and part of being a Christian is fighting sin and striving to live like Jesus to the best of your ability. If you're not a Christian, then fellowship is impossible in that sense. So you have to be holy in one sense uh, in order to have fellowship like John is talking about. But I would say there's a second reason. Without holiness, we wouldn't even be able to enjoy fellowship in heaven, even if we could go to heaven without holiness. Does that make sense? There's a lot of double negatives in there. Um, If you could get into heaven without holiness, without the requirements of a Christian, you wouldn't even enjoy the fellowship there. Now, that may seem like an obvious thing, but if you think about it very much longer, and some of our cultural assumptions, that is not an obvious statement. This may not be a very sensitive thing to say, and so I want to be careful, but if you're like me and you have been to countless funerals of people that are very clearly unbelievers, like not, not even, not even that just kind of casually went to church, but just like would repudiate the Lord, and yet because we feel like we kind of have to do this at a funeral to be nice, you know, there's an assumption that they were a believer. Um, culturally, we just assume everyone's going to a better place except for maybe like Hitler and Genghis Khan. But that's not true. And that's not a harsh thing to say. That is one, a present reality we have to know. It's not kind of us to, to, to skate around the eternal things of God. Especially when Jesus has given up his life to give an offer to be the solution of sin. But even more so, it's just a reality that if you could get to heaven without holiness, you would not enjoy it there. And so I'm going to read you a quote of a guy named J.C. Ryle. And it's a little bit of a long quote, but I, I, you'll be able to understand he's a very clear preacher. And I want you to think about his argument here. Suppose for a moment that you were allowed to enter heaven without holiness. What would you do? What possible enjoyment could you feel there? To which of all the saints would you join yourself? And by whose side would you sit down? Their pleasures are not your pleasures. Their taste not your taste. Their character, not your character. How could you possibly hap- be happy? if you had not been holy on earth. Now, perhaps you love the company of the light and the careless, the worldly-minded and the covetous, the reveler and the pleasure-seeker, the ungodly and the profane. There will be none such in heaven. Now, perhaps you think the saints of God are too strict and particular and serious. You'd rather avoid them. You have no delight in their company. There will be no other company like that in heaven. Now, perhaps... You think praying and scripture reading and hymn singing, dull and melancholy and a stupid work, a thing to be tolerated now and then, but not enjoyed. You reckon the Sabbath is a burden and a weariness, and you could not possibly spend more than a small part of it in worshiping God. But remember, heaven is a never-ending Sabbath. The inhabitants thereof rest not day or night, singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and singing praises to the Lamb. How could an unholy man find pleasure in an occupation such as this? If you could get to heaven without holiness, you would hate it there. If you could get to heaven somehow without Jesus, you would hate it there. Because the only thing you're going to have in there ultimately is Jesus. And it will be holy and refined and purified and sanctified and glorified. So the best way, you know, so many of us are searching for joy in God and fellowship with God and his church. The best way to do that is live a holy life now because it's a foretaste of what you're going to experience forever in glory. And if our lives don't accord with with, with a, a routine of holiness, a spirit of holiness, well, then it's no wonder we might find church really boring. Because if we're honest, our pleasures are not in the things of God. And I I don't say that from a condemning atmosphere as if I have this all figured out. I do not at all. At all. At all. We have to work together as a community to love the things of God. Because that is ultimately what will fuel our fellowship together. If we want to have good community, now a lot of you are here mostly because of community. You, you, you know, the, the, the teaching's fine, the worship's fine, but really, because you want to know other people your age that are Christians, the best way to fuel your fellowship is to be holy together and to love Jesus together. And I'll just give one, obser- one other observation on this topic of fellowship. You could argue, and I don't think this is an exaggeration, although I haven't had a super long time to think about this, um, but I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the second greatest privilege in the world, besides knowing Jesus, is the fellowship of believers. Why, why do I argue that? Because if you think about it in heaven, what is our core joy in heaven? It is Jesus and being in his glory, in his presence and worshiping him. But what's the next thing we get to do? It's, it's being fellowship with believers. I don't know about you, but you know, my first... My first, I guess i say, second joy in this life is not always fellowship with the church. As someone that works on the staff at a church, sometimes you can see the ugly side of, of the church. If, you're, if any of you are in the church very long, you will see the ugly side of the church. It's not an excuse to avoid fellowship, but to say, how can we live holy lives together? And what I promise you is that if we were to invest as a community of 20-somethings in fellowship together in the spirit of Jesus, there would be so much joy there. And it would be one of the most attractive things for unbelievers that would be in our midst. If you think about the Acts 2 church and the way they shared all things in common and they love one another, if an unbeliever came into this room and sensed that from us, they would not want to leave. They would get addicted because they'd say, there's something different here. These people love each other. It doesn't mean they agree on everything. It doesn't mean they dress the same or they talk the same or they have the same interests, but they love each other because at the core, there's something that brings them together. And in this world, that's hard to find. There's no wonder Satan from the beginning has tried to bring about division in the fellowship of God's people. In the Garden of Eden with a man and his wife, soon after with their children. Then you see, you read Ephesians 5 and you see things like a, a, a boss and a servant. You, you see things like a, a husband and his wife. All those things where Satan's trying to cause division. Even within the church in 1 Corinthians 2 and 1 Corinthians 5. You see all of the ways that Satan is trying to separate the fellowship of God's church because he knows how powerful it is. So just if I could make the observation, if we would invest together in fellowship, it would be amazing the witness that we could have for our community. Final thing. You will notice, if you look back over John's words, and again, I wish we had a little more time now because we could could walk through verse by verse just in a little more detail, but let's take a time. Just one kind of more observation, I think is particularly important. Look with me at that second half. I'm going to read it one more time for you because I want you to think about this message. This message which we have heard from him and we proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all our sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. I think one of the most important things that John is pointing out, other than the obvious point that we should strive for holiness, is that covering up sin is never safe. Covering up sin is never safe, even if it feels safe right now. That is a message our world needs to hear, the church needs to hear, I mean, you heard me mention earlier that there is a case of the Southern Baptist Convention, a denomination that is dear to my heart, of a few major leaders who found out about sexual abuse a number of years ago, and rather than reporting it like they should have in the authority they were trusted with, they hid it. And a lot Mm. of people got hurt. And now, what they thought would be covered up is not covered up anymore at all, and, and their logic for covering it up was that if people hear about this, it'll hurt the mission. People might not give as much for the gospel. Uh, it might hurt our witness. Well, friends, the reality is, if you cover up sin, it will always be found out and your witness will look way worse. Just This is a silly example compared to that. But I just think about when I was a kid, my friends and I would play these nerf battles in the basement and we'd get pretty intense. And uh, still to this day, there are a few holes in the wall of my parents' basement. I remember one time there was a particularly big hole that got made because someone tried to dodge a Nerf bullet and back into the wall. And it was like this perfect kind of butt print in the wall. It was kind of funny. And um, I was freaking out. It was the first hole I think we'd ever put in that wall. I had no idea what my parents were going to do. And so it's a white wall. And uh, so I grabbed a, several pieces of 8x11, just basic printer paper. And, I don't, you, you know, you laughed. They did not find out about this for a couple years because just the way the lighting was set, if you walked by, it was kind of behind a ping pong table, you wouldn't necessarily notice it. It You would only notice if you stared at the wall long enough, and they they didn't really hang out in the basement. So they didn't find out for several years, but when they did, oh my gosh, I I won't tell you what the punishment was, but if I would have just told them, hey, I'm so sorry, we just put a a butt shaped hole in the wall. they would have said, okay, you know, maybe you're in trouble, but it's okay. We'll get it fixed. It's, it's fine. But because I hit it, and they found out, and they, they knew you know, who had caused the incident, obviously, I got in such big trouble. And I, I broke a ton of trust with my parents. I know, I know that's a silly example, but the same thing is true with our witness in this world. Is, I, I don't know what struggles you may be going through. Maybe it's a porn addiction. Maybe it's an addiction... To um, the equivalent of gossip on social media, uh, maybe it's an addiction to what others think of you. Maybe it's an addiction to drugs or alcohol or whatever it may be. And you maybe you feel trapped. You know what you're doing is not right, but you feel like, man, I have been so stuck in this for so long. I feel like you know nobody else knows. I feel like I can't tell anybody. I promise there is grace for this. It is not right to be stuck in sin. I can remember a season in college where I was particularly stuck in sin and I felt so ashamed I didn't want to share it with anybody and yet if I, if I had shared it with someone right off the bat it would have prevented me from a long time of shame and guilt so I don't know where you're at I don't know what struggles you might have but I want to remind you that there is no such thing as a private sin if you read the Bible very long at all we are reminded that even if someone in this life doesn't figure it out Jesus knows his gaze uh, pierces flesh and blood. And on Judgment Day, every sin you have ever committed will be broadcast to the world. We will all understand and see. Even the Bible, I can't remember if it's Nahum or Habakkuk, there's this chilling passage that talks about the, these, uh, the Chaldeans have come in and they've raided God's people. And they've torn down houses and things and, and raped and pillaged and all these awful things. And God says that even the nails and the boards and the stones of those houses will cry out in judgment against those people for the sins they have done. Even inanimate objects. The biggest source of judgment on Judgment Day for us will probably be these things. The things that you look up when no one else is around or the things you text to others when you think no one else is looking. It's not a secret. And with these things... It's even more of a a public thing, not just because Jesus knows, but because we don't do anything that's really private on our phones. Everybody has data that's shared everywhere. you guys remember anything about the Ashley Madison case from several years ago, it's a site where you could sign up privately and you could solicit affairs. And then this hacker company broke in and, and hacked all the data and said, if you don't give us this vast amount of money, we will release all the data. There's no such thing as a private thing. Pornhub has all of your information. Let's be honest. There's no such thing as a private sin. And I don't say that to shame or anything like that. I just say it, don't listen to Satan's lies like you can hide it and you'll be okay. You won't. And yet, the reason we have leaders here, the reason we are in fellowship together is because if we would share our sins with one another and we would walk alongside one another in our fight for sin, fight against sin, we, we could fight addiction together. We could look more like Jesus together. And we could win the battle against sin in our lives and be more of a witness for God's sake. I, I have been around way too many people, even in this church and in other churches and, and Christians, who have thought, I can't let people find out about this because it'll hurt my witness. And when their sin actually becomes public, it's even worse. Please find people you can trust, whether it's a leader here or someone else in your life that's a Christian, that will walk alongside you we are all here and we would love to talk with you if, you if you need someone to pray with you and be with you in this moment covering up sin is not worth it when you act like you're okay and you know you're not you make God out to be a liar that's what John's saying but the beautiful reality is that God didn't write all of this through John to put us in a hopeless place because look with me at verse 9 if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You don't have to do this alone. You can bring your sin to God. I know there are so many of us that can have this thought of saying, you know what, I'm so broken, I'm so lost in this sin, I feel like I can't even go to God. Like He wouldn't even open his arms to me. If, he, if only he knew what I had done. But friends, God already knows what you've done. He knows everything. He knew every sin you would ever commit before you committed it. Every sin you ever thought about committing. And yet, Jesus still chose to die on the cross for your sin. He is not surprised. He's just disappointed when you hide it from him. Confess your sin to him, and he welcomes you with open arms. In fact, one of the reasons perfectionism is a heresy and it's a hopeless thing is because Jesus didn't come to save perfectionists, He didn't come to save people that, quote unquote, don't sin. He only came to save sinners. So if you sin, the awesome thing is you are qualified to go to Jesus. You're the only one that is qualified. There is hope in Jesus. No matter how broken and addicted your life may feel right now, there is always hope. Jesus gave up his life for the very people that put him to death on a cross. Since I assume none of us have done that in this life. I would say there is hope. Even the most sinful people in all the world, Jesus gave up his life. And he uses them. You're not useless. Paul was going around trying to kill Christians, and God ended up using him to be one of the most profound theologians and pastors in all the history of the world. So even as addicted as you might feel right now, and as shameful as you might feel right now, God can still use you. And oftentimes, those are the people he uses most, because his glory is most manifested to show that it was not in their own power that something happened. It was in his. Lean into the forgiveness of Jesus. There's this classic hymn that just kind of sums all of this up. It says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. Jesus' blood is what cleanses us. If we would confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. He welcomes you with open arms. And that is the hope that this community has together. So as we go through this series, pray to God and say, God, is there something that I am trying to hide from you? Would you help me be open and honest and confess that I would live my life in such a way that it would be a reflection of the love of Jesus for the world to see? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. You did not have to give it to us, and yet, God, you give us this immense gift of hope and reality in your word. You help us see the world for the way it really is. So God, would you help us wrestle with your word, steep our lives in your word, that we might look more like Jesus. God, I pray that my friends here tonight, myself included, that our lives would become more and more like clear pictures of who Jesus is, that we would be, our lives would be letters of recommendation to Jesus. We don't know when our last breath will be. We're not even promised a safe drive home tonight. Are we living in such a way that our lives point people to Jesus? God, help us to do that together. And if we would do that as a group, not only in our personal lives, but in our fellowship together, in our worship, imagine the witness it could be for the world. God, help us fight sin. Help us confess our sin to you and help us have hope in Jesus. May we damn the lies of the devil that tries to make us think that there is no hope. Help us cling to Jesus and his forgiveness so that his blood would be the fountain of our salvation. We thank you for Jesus and all he's done for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.